it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. My name is Kate Rooney, and I'm with the amazing, glorious Jess Guffey today. Wow. Hello, Jess. We're so nice to each other in our intros. I wish listeners could hear what we actually just were saying to each other. <laughs> you were just yelling at me for hanging up on you, even though we were on Zoom and Audacity and in Slack. Yeah. So. I mean, I just felt like you were leaving me in a time of need when we were testing things, and I just didn't like it. So... A little codependency <laughs> issues here. A lot. A lot. It's fine. Everything's fine. That's okay. Everything's, Everything's fine. We're thriving. Kate just told me, fun fact, that she's only seen four movies in her life. <laughs> One of them is That Thing You Do, which you still have not seen, and I'm very upset yeah, about well it. That. And exciting news on the Carte Rune front. Kate's now a world-renowned recording artist, for those interested. <laughs> It's been a really weird week. I'm very excited about this promo we're doing for Design Pickle. It's it's all Willy Wonka themed, but because it's Willy Wonka themed, we needed an Oompa Loompa song to go along with it. Yeah. Kate wrote it in like 20 minutes as a poetry minor, as she liked to remind me of, because, you know, she was an English major, you guys. Yeah, nothing really makes you sound like an English major other than calling Catcher in the Rye by the wrong name <laughs> when, you, when you're recording a podcast so let's pretend like that never happened and instead let's focus on the oompa loompa song it's important also we (laughs) we had planned on having someone write this on from fiverr but instead i had to do it the morning of the filming yep because that's how (laughs) we roll it's (laughs) it's been stuck in my head i i don't think i will ever be able to watch that movie again without this new version just filling up space in my brain. And just so everyone knows, we we didn't use Oompa Loompas, we used Lurkin Gherkins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is important to call out here. We did not just rip off what was pre-existing. They are Lurkin Gherkins now, so enjoy that visual, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, I... I'm so excited for you to tell me a story today because you've hyped it up. For the and it's, uh Yeah, but you said it's a type of person that we haven't covered before. So this is true. please tell me who it is. Well, first, I would like to ask you a question. Have you ever eaten a burger in another country? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well. What could foreign burgers have to do with your story? We're just going to learn about some other burgers in other countries real quick. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, they got the metric system. They don't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. 
they call it Big Mac. Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. What do they call it? Wap. Well, as previously stated, I've only seen four movies in my life, and I'm ashamed to admit that Pulp Fiction is not one of them, but I have so many questions about this, because this is an iconic scene, but I have no idea if you are covering John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, if you're going to cover a French chef, what is going on here? Le Big Mac. (laughs) (laughs) So... I wanted to throw you off the scent a little bit just for fun mm. because I think that scene is so funny and so fun. We are covering someone, our very first person that has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. What? This person also was named on Time's 2005 list of top 100 most influential people. And, dun dun dun, dun he is considered one of the most celebrated filmmakers of this generation. Wow. Yes, we are covering Quentin Tarantino today. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Very big departure from what I would normally pick, but here yeah, we are. Yeah, I'm surprised. And I know. Per usual, know nothing about him, so bring it on. Let's do this. Yeah. So I just quick sidebar, like I picked him because I wrote a paper on Pulp Fiction in college and it's one of my dad's favorite movies, so I've like seen it multiple times. And I was just thinking, which class were you in when you wrote that? Don't even ask. I don't know. It was like a 12 page paper on Pulp Fiction. I do not recall if I even still have it, but wrote an entire paper on it nonetheless. And I was just thinking about different people that would maybe be a little bit outside of our norm and like out of my comfort zone because I'm not really a film buff either. I like movies, but I'm not like obsessed and Pulp Fiction came to mind. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if Quentin is interesting. And then lo and behold, <laughs> he's pretty damn interesting. <laughs> so we're covering him. Uh, the structure might be a little different than what we're used to. I think we usually go, you know, by big events in these people's lives. This is going to be more by his films. It'll okay. still be in chronological order, but uh, his films are so important to his life that I didn't want to lose sight of that when we're talking about this. And we're probably going to do more sidebars than usual because his creative process is very publicized. And I really want to make sure that we talk about that a lot. So if it sounds all over the place, I apologize. We just really wanted to make sure that we're giving people insight onto what Quentin's brain is like. Well, that I mean, that's that's the point of the podcast, though, is to find out exactly, you know, how these creative people come up with the work that they do. Yeah. So. Quentin Jerome Tarantino was born in 1963 in Knoxville, Tennessee, to Connie Pender and Tony Tarantino. His dad, Tony, was an actor and producer, and Quentin was actually named after Quint Asper, which was a Burt Reynolds character in Gunsmoke, so his association with movies started at a very young age. Hmm. But in true Hollywood fashion, his parents were not married long, and in 1966, when he was three, he moved to California with his mom. Connie quickly remarried a musician, and this musician actually encouraged Quentin's love of movies from a very young age, so much so that he and Connie allowed Quentin to see adult movies at a very young age. Ooh, scandal. His exposure was just right out of the gate with films. (laughs) You know, think about all of the children who saw Quentin Tarantino's movies way too young. So it's just full circle. Totally. perfect. 
So flash forward to 1977 when Quentin is 14, he wrote his very first screenplay and it was called Captain Peach Fuzz and the Anchovy Bandit, (laughs) 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 which was actually a playoff of Smokey and the Bandit because he clearly liked Burt Reynolds, Uh, Uh, but 14 writing your own (laughs) screenplay. That's pretty impressive for a young guy. Yeah. Wow. The very next year he was caught shoplifting an Elmore Leonard book from Kmart his mom was not thrilled about this and threatened to take movies away from him, but he begged and begged and begged, and he ended up just being grounded but could still see movies. So that struck me as interesting because she clearly understood how important movies were to him and how depressed he would be if they were taken away completely. So shortly after, he drops out of middle school and starts working at an adult movie theater as an usher. Now, this is... Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. So this is interesting because he it's long been rumored that Quentin has an IQ of 160. So for him to drop out of middle school and be that intelligent, it's just kind of a weird dichotomy. He's also been quoted saying he didn't realize at the time when he dropped out that high school and college would be so different from middle school, but that in a way, as a true creative would say, it kind of gave him some street cred because not a lot of people can say they're sure. middle school dropouts and have gone on to become so successful, <gasps> which is true. I mean, that's a hundred percent valid. Yeah, I oh, I hated middle right? school so much. I would have I would have loved to have just dropped out at that right. time. And I, I think could. I'm glad I didn't. I was but. thinking about this when I was researching, but if you're that smart. Imagine, it's hard enough anyways in middle school, but imagine trying to fit in when you're that intelligent and you have something that, you know, you're very passionate about at that young age. And a lot of kids just, all they care about is going to parties and, you know, doing group hangs (laughs) and all that stuff at that age. Okay, I think that alone just says how different you and I are. Because you're like, yeah, go to parties. And I'm like, yeah, picking your nose, (laughs) (laughs) playing alone in your bedroom. So different, different lifestyles. That's fine. Everything's fine. But Here we are, Kate. Regardless. Here we are. So he started attending acting classes because he had to do something. But in true Quentin fashion, he got bored after two years and dropped out of these classes as well. He realized through taking acting classes that he liked writing stories more than performing them, which you can probably relate to, Kate. I would say that's, that's very similar to your, your thoughts on that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to be in front of the camera. I just want to record a podcast so everyone can hear how stupid I sound. Stupid idiots, 101. So moral of the story is he was never formally trained in filmmaking. Uh, He's famously stated, when people ask me if I went to film school, I tell them, no, I went to films. So, okay, Mm. we get it, Quentin. You like movies. Well, again, I, I feel like we see that over and over because... Uh, yes, it is great if you go to school for whichever art you're working in, but th- you can also get a lot of bad habits doing it that way. You're you're just learning the old way instead of doing something that's totally unique and new. So I get it. I'm with Quentin yeah, here. I do too. And it makes sense. So throughout the 1980s, uh, he had a variety of odd jobs. At one point, he was working as a recruiter for the aerospace industry. Never saw that coming. Oh. Um, And then he started working at video archives and people there would often describe him as a movie buff and someone who tried to unite people with movies. So he felt like it was his duty to kind of share his knowledge with the people that would come into the store, even though it was an hourly job and other people would view that as insignificant. He took it very seriously. 
he was quoted saying at one point, I don't hang around pool halls, I don't play poker, and I don't go to sporting events. To me, torture would be watching sports on television. One thing I don't understand <laughs> is that average American moviegoers cannot watch a movie for three hours, yet they'll watch a stupid, boring, horrific football game for four hours. Now that is boredom at its most colossal. I laughed so hard when I read this because it is you to a T. <laughs> My my mouth could not get wider right now. I'm like, what? I have so much more respect for him. Yeah. Uh, no shade to everyone who loves sports, but come on, it's so boring. It's the same thing over and over again. This is like one of our biggest Just... fundamental differences, Kate. <laughs> I like sports. You yeah. like video games. It's fine. But are we just glossing over the fact that he worked for an adult movie store when he was underage? Or Well, so, yeah, because... It, okay. it's a different That's time sure. it's a different time <laughs> <laughs> good to know just yeah. just checking just checking that we're not gonna nope. you know dive we're back not into going that. to but okay. <laughs> so anyways when he worked at the store he claimed he would observe what people like to watch and that it profoundly impacted his directing down the road because all he did all day was interact with these customers and would notice, you know, what movies were trending, what movies people didn't pick up ever. And that really kind of influenced how he wanted to make film for people in the future. It's also important to note that he's an avid reader still is today. And of all people, J.D. Salinger is a big inspiration to him. So bringing it back full circle. Wow. So he, he read Catcher <laughs> of the Rye, that famous book the, of the yes, Rye. That's the one. <laughs> That's it. That's the name. That's it. That's the title. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's yeah. cool. So I thought yeah. that was a nice little tie-in to our, one of our first episodes, but regardless. It kind of makes sense to hear, you know, he's a he's a junior high dropout, yep. and he perhaps related to Holden Agreed. Caulfield. So. Agreed. Hmm. At one point during this time, he was so poor, he couldn't even pay his parking tickets, so he served jail time. <laughs> and he's, he said, <laughs> it's easier when you're broke to just do the time. <laughs> it's worth it's worth the crime dude not wrong also i have many questions about why he had so many parking tickets in the first place (laughs) but since i feel like i have a lot in common with with him so far i might want to regret i might regret saying that that later on in the story (laughs) but this is so embarrassing when i was in high school i lived literally across the street from the school that i went to across the street it was like a five minute walk and i i drove every single day and i had so many parking tickets because of it should have walked you should have just walked why no but i was like i'll just pay the parking tickets fine (laughs) so stupid it's it's easier to do that than to just walk okay okay whatever i relate i relate to quentin kids don't follow what kate says kids don't. don't listen to this podcast yeah true so, in 1986, Quentin finally has his first Hollywood gig. He's a PA on Dolph Lundgren's exercise video set, which I love. Is he Swedish? Dolph Lundgren? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Or, or German? Ability, yes. I don't know. So, that's kind of funny. And then in 1987, Lawrence Bender met Quentin at a party and encouraged him to write his very first film. And the first attempt that he wrote was never published, so we don't know what that was. But he next wrote My Best Friend's Birthday, 
But this was never completed as a full film because allegedly the film reels were destroyed in a fire. So we don't really know what this entailed, but allegedly it was a little more lighthearted, fun comedy than Quentin's traditional stuff mm. before he goes all dark on us. <laughs> Maybe he started the fire. Maybe. This same year, he played an Elvis impersonator in an episode of The Golden Girls. Oh, <laughs> wow. So he's really getting in the Hollywood groove now. You know, okay. he's he's doing a bunch of different things here and there. He's trying to write. He's an Elvis impersonator. He's PA. <laughs> he's getting his feet wet in Hollywood. Uh, shortly after he wrote From Dusk Till Dawn, which was his first paid writing assignment, he made $1,500 for the entire script. And Whoa. part of that fee was traded for special effects in his first feature film, which was Reservoir Dogs. <gasps> that was his first feature film? Mm-hmm. Whoa, he really hit yeah. the ground running. Yeah, so... Reservoir Dogs comes out in 1992. It debuts at Sundance. He obviously wrote, directed, and acted in it. Wow. And obviously, like, this had a significant meaning to him. And I think it's important to note that all of his scripts are still, to this day, written by hand. So when asked about this, he said one time, let me ask you a question. If you were going to try to write a poem, would you do it on a computer? And, you know, I get that. I get having that connection to the paper. I was still I'm that shaking person in my college. head right now. Yeah. yeah. In college, I took notes on paper instead of my computer most of the time because I just think, I don't know, it's a weird connection that we could probably... It feels more personal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think when it's your art that you're trying to get out, I totally get that. This is also the time, you know, it's Reservoir Dogs is a big deal. So it's when we really start to see him developing his personality as both a writer and a director, which I always think is an interesting relationship. He said once in an interview about his identity with both, I have a writer's journey going on and a filmmaker's journey going on. Obviously, they're symbiotic, but they're also very separate. When I write my scripts, it's not really about the movie per se. It's about the page. It's supposed to be literature. I write stuff that's never going to make it in the movie and stuff that I know wouldn't even be right for the movie, but I'll put it in the screenplay. We'll decide later if we shoot it or not, but it's important for the written work. When I finish the script, I want the script to be so good that I'm tempted not to make the movie because if I stop right now, I'm the winner. Now, I do make them, but I want the screenplay to be that much of a document. I rarely look at the script after that other than to just go over the dialogue, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Like, it's just all in his brain. Yeah, it it makes sense to me because, you know, you're watching a movie that's maybe anywhere from an hour to two hours long, maybe, and you're only seeing that part. But in order to make that part happen, the person who's creating it has to have the backstories of all of the characters and all the connections between it. So it's not just what you see. It's, yeah, it's a whole story behind it. It's it's like a novel. 100%. So, as you may or may not know, you probably don't know, but for our nope. listeners, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs was a neo-noir crime-slash-heist movie, which was very indicative of his future styles. Critics claimed it was an instant success. Quick fun fact, a paramedic was kept on set to ensure the amount of blood loss was realistic that they were showing. Also, in the opening scene of the movie, the characters are discussing Like a Virgin by Madonna, the song. Mm-hmm. Madonna saw the movie, and as a response, she sent Quentin a note with her erotica album that that song was on and said, To Quentin, it's not about dick, it's about love. Madonna. 
That's so Madonna. I love it. <laughs> so Madonna. So obviously with the name, there's a ton of speculation. No one really knows why it's called Reservoir Dogs. It makes no mm. sense in the context of the film. One theory is he just made up a story for investors saying it was a gangster term for French films. Another theory is that it came from his video store days where he recommended a French film and the customer misheard it as Reservoir Dogs. And then another theory is that he actually misheard a title from his girlfriend and thought she said Reservoir Dogs, but he's never given a legit explanation as to why it's called Reservoir Dogs. I was going to ask you, he's just never addressed it? No, he refuses to address it. Hmm. So regardless, Reservoir Dogs is often called the greatest indie film of all time, and it essentially launched the independent film revolution in the 90s. So once this film took off and people saw that it was a critical success, commercial success, all of the above, more and more filmmakers in Hollywood were like, oh, I can make a film. <laughs> I can do this on my own. Whatever. That's what I thought when I was recording the Oompa Loompa song. I can make an Oompa Loompa song, no problem. I can sing. I'm a world-renowned recording artist. I don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm tone deaf. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. Yeah. So in 1994, Pulp Fiction comes out, as you know. Oh, 94. What a year. Can we go back? (laughs) (laughs) So Pulp Fiction has that same neo-noir black comedy vibe. I don't know. You've never seen the film, right, Kate? (laughs) I I was not planning to... reveal that to an audience of people well that I've never now seen everyone movie. knows it's okay now you just have to watch oh, it but I know. the entire film is out of sequence so there are multiple storylines but the entire thing is flip-flopped so you're seeing it in different times than you would if it was chronological also all the clocks are set to 420 in the entire film hey <laughs> why that would be your reaction no one knows it's just a thing it also has i mean there's so many f- fan theories about Pulp Fiction. It's a cult classic and commercial classic, but all of these types of things are heavily debated in the film world. I didn't get into it because we would be there forever. So uh, another fun fact is that Samuel L. Jackson's Bible verse that he shouts at someone in it, you have to watch so you know what I'm talking about, all of our listeners and Kate. The Bible verse is entirely made up. It's not actually from the Bible. Quentin and Samuel L. Jackson made it up for the movie. Someone for sure has that tattooed somewhere oh, on their body. Yeah. <laughs> As a real Bible quote. Uh, one more fun anecdote. So John Travolta, his character, Vincent Vega, is addicted to heroin. And obviously he had no idea how to portray that on film. So Quentin was like, don't worry, I have a recovering drug addict that you can talk to to figure out how you can replicate the feeling of being on heroin. So the advice was drink a bunch of tequila in a hot tub from the attic to John Travolta. So John Travolta took his wife to a hotel. They lined the hot tub with tequila shots and drank all of them while in the hot tub. So he could figure out how he felt in the moment and then replicate that on camera. And John Travolta was never the same again. (laughs) Possibly. I just thought that was really interesting. I mean, my first thought was, how are you remembering how you feel? If you're that messed up, but neither here nor there. Well, I, we cannot say. We yeah. cannot say. So, Although I would love to be in a hot tub right now. That sounds yeah. so nice. Yeah, agreed. Obviously, Pulp Fiction was a critical and commercial success, and many call it, still to this day, a defining film of modern Hollywood. Hmm. 
quick sidebar on that. So everything in Pulp Fiction is indicative of Quentin's style now and throughout all of his films. So it kind of laid the groundwork for him. But basically, it's been quoted since Pulp Fiction and since other films. He writes two types of scripts. And these movies fall into two realms that all exist in one universe together. So all of his movies are intertwined. So there's the quote, realer than real world, which Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs come into. And then there's quote, movie, movie, which is Kill Bill and a few other films. So as you can imagine, the fan theories are wild on this. There are articles upon articles on all the connections and how the characters relate and how the storylines intersect fascinating but with this quentin likes to leave 20 percent of every movie unseen so that the audience can create whatever they want in their mind and pulp fiction is a really good example of this because i don't know if you know kate but one of the biggest themes throughout the movie is a suitcase but you never know what's in the suitcase so he just leaves that up to the viewers to decide oh it was xyz that's so brilliant isn't it? So, I mean, you're going to have people talking about your film because they want it. Oh, wow. Yeah. She love that. Brilliant bastard. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, Quentin also notoriously hates product placement. So if you watch any of his films, you'll never see a legitimate brand. He makes all of them up. So a good Except example. Except for McDonald's, though. I mean. So they're that's in the dialogue. They're not showing <gasps> McDonald's. Okay. Big difference. He doesn't like to show any real brands. So, for example, in Pulp Fiction, they're at a restaurant, which, by the way, all of the films that he's ever made include scenes at a restaurant. No one knows why. They just do. But two of the characters are at a restaurant, and instead of being a TGI Fridays or something like that, it's called Jackrabbit Slims. <laughs> just totally made up. I would not want to eat there. <laughs> Right? It's <laughs> so strange. So the only other component that I'll mention here is that, again, Kate, I'm going to keep saying this, but you wouldn't know, but Pulp Fiction has an awesome yeah, rub soundtrack. Yeah, it in. Okay, yeah. we know. I'm trying to pressure you into watching it. Pulp Fiction has an amazing soundtrack, as do all of his films, and that's kind of something that people just know about Quentin. And he actually said in an interview that when he's getting ready to write a new movie, he goes to his record room and pulls different records to get him inspired to start writing. So the soundtrack really inspires his writing and the screenplays first, which is interesting to me because I would never think of going to music to write a screenplay, but here we are. It captures the mood. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. What, what, what kind of music, as someone who's seen four films, what kind of uh, music does he put into his films? All different genres, all different decades, all different musicians. Okay, it's, so yeah, he's not sticking to one certain nope. artist or anything like that. And okay. that's kind of the magic of it, I think. So, Pulp Fiction won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and Quentin won for Best Director. Hmm. This same year, he also wrote two other films and served as an executive producer on another. Very busy guy in 1994, let me tell you. Great year, again. Great year. Just a great year. In 1997, Jackie Brown comes out, and this is his only film that was based on someone else's idea. So, not a lot to mention about this film. It's a black exploitation film. Do you know what that mm. is? I had to look that I up. I do, but I think you should explain for the it's podcast. Essentially, when people try to create art that caters to a certain demographic and not to the masses. So it was called Black Exploitation. It was big in the 70s. He kind of brought it back. 
this film was an adaptation of, as you may recall, his uh, book that he stole from Kmart was Elmore Len- Leonard, which I can't say. So this film was an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard novel called Rum Punch. And he credits Leonard for helping him find his voice and his inspiration for his storylines in every film going forward, which is interesting. Wow. Now, it's important to mention, so I mentioned that this is his only movie based on someone else's idea. Throughout his career, he's been accused of plagiarism and stealing visual references from other movies the entire time. It's a heavily debated topic. And each film of his references at least a dozen other movies within it. So visual references, little cues here and there, etc. And there's a great debate about if it's an homage or if it's just straight up theft from these other films. Now, Quentin himself has said, great artists steal, they don't do homages. So he's admitting that he straight up just steals stuff. I was gonna run to his defense, though, because... I. Yeah, we you you can make a lot of art, but you're rarely, especially in this day and age, you're rarely coming up with anything. You're not going to reinvent the wheel. So that's exactly it. And okay. what people say is, in his defense, he steals from sources spanning decades, not just one place. It's also comparable to sampling music, which is very yeah. prominent right now. And he pulls inspiration from things that are so vastly different. So just to name a few... Hong Kong crime, Chinese kung fu movies, black exploitation, Japanese samurai movies, low budget films, Italian spaghetti western films. Like oh, it's not cool. just one genre that he's focused on. He mashes all of them together. And that's why he's so good at it because he is stealing from different genres and everything he steals, quote unquote steals, enhances the film and are easy references to miss within the film, so it's not like the films that he creates hinge on these references solely Mm -hmm. to perpetuate. So he's blending things together. He's creating something new. And it actually is, you probably know this concept very well, but it's concept of postmodernism. So the idea is nothing is new in art. Everything is reused, which you just said. It's so true. That, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Everything is reused. You're, you're getting, you you kept saying steal, and I'm sure that's what a lot of articles say, but it's, it's not so much stealing as you're inspired by other pieces of art to make your own thing. So, I mean, I, I'm i sure there's a lot of issues w- with him that we'll get into. So I don't want to like be like, he's, he's fine. He's a great guy. But that, eh, I don't know. I could defend that. I, I'm behind that. I believe in yep. postmodernism. And with that, let's take a quick break. So, Kate. Yes, Jess? We talk a lot on the podcast about how people, creative specifically, may or may not be the worst. Yeah, right? we, we've heard a lot who actually are the worst. But you know who isn't the worst? Who's that? Design Pickles friendly and reliable designers. Oh, wait, do they make pickles or? Yes. What's going on here? It's actually pickle manufacturing. No. Kate, it's flat rate. Unlimited graphic design and custom custom illustration services. Ooh, I love custom. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Design Pickle is actually one of the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America. We've won a ton of awards for our unlimited creative services and, and design. 
It's so awesome. It's so helpful if you are a podcaster or a content creator in general, because you sign up, we match you with one of our professional designers and you work with them and not being passed around to different freelancers, which is really, really cool for brand consistency. Yeah, it is. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you get a special discount. If you use the code WORST at checkout, you get $100 off your first month for any plan. Any plan. $100 off any plan. That's We have our essentials plan for just your basic design needs. There's pro if you need more advanced work with same-day delivery or custom illustrations too, where you can submit unlimited requests for 100% original artwork. $100 off. That is a sweet, sweet dill, if I would say myself. And we're back. And we're in 2003 now. And you know what year this was, Kate? This was the Kill Bill Volume 1 year. Ooh. One of the four movies that I've seen is Kill Bill. Yes. That's one of them. Aren't there multiples? Yep. We'll get there. So for those of you that don't know, Kill Bill is a martial arts movie. It's essentially an homage to Grindhouse, which is low-budget cinema, which there's plenty of, obviously. Uh, Obviously. Obviously, because I'm such a film buff, I know all this. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, When Quentin was interviewed by someone on this film, it was just a local San Francisco interview, and within it, it was... I wish I could show it to you, but I want to save it for another clip. He was so disrespectful, but he advised children 12 plus to see the film. He was like, yeah, everyone go see it. It's appropriate for children. It's fine. He said that girls would be empowered by all the violence towards women because, quote, Uma is a female warrior. I love, love when men tell me what I'll be empowered by. Yeah. Uh, the whole interview, it just, it's weird. It was condescending. The interviewer says, well, the movie's about killing women. And he he just kept talking over her the entire time. Yikes. And then he asked, or she asked him, why do you feel the need for such gruesome violence? And he goes, because it's so much fun, Jan. <gasps> Ooh. So that's when we first start seeing his takes on violence, which are very controversial. He also said, you're talking about real life. I'm talking about the movies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in one regard, I kind of get that. But also, you're not answering the question. Right. Can you please answer the question? Yeah. So, on the set of Kill Bill, Uma Thurman was in a serious car accident because he asked her, pressured her, whatever you want to believe to do her own driving stunts, even though she didn't feel comfortable doing it. He said it would be more authentic to the film if she did. She sustained permanent injuries to her neck and knees from the accident. And a few weeks after the crash, she requested footage of it because she was like, Hey, I'm messed up. You know, my body's, you know, not in good shape. And Miramax, AKA our friend Harvey Weinstein would only give it to her if she signed a waiver releasing Miramax of liability. And of course, Uma was like, absolutely not. I'm not releasing you of liability for me getting hurt. That's not, no, it's not happening. If you're in the movie, you're not allowed to see the footage of that? Yeah. Yikes. So I don't want to get out of chronological order here. I but know, but just, oh. In 2018, uh, Quentin publicly apologized and released the footage to Uma. So, 
mind you, this is 15 years after the fact. This happened in 2003, if not sooner. And he finally apologized, released the footage to her. She's been quoted saying, Quentin finally atoned by giving it to me after 15 years, right? Not that it matters now with my permanently damaged neck and screwed up knees. Damn, Uma. Quentin also said repeatedly that Uma consented to driving in the stunt, trying to defend himself, and she said it was negligent to the point of criminality, but she did not think that Quentin had malicious intent with forcing her, quote-unquote, to go through with this. She put the blame more on Harvey Weinstein. So, who are we to say what happened, but take the facts as you will from that situation. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. In 2003... Quentin also does an interview with Howard Stern to promote Kill Bill, and within this interview, he defended Roman Polanski over his 1977 sexual abuse case. Quentin said, quote, the girl, the victim, was down to party and, quote, wanted to have it. He also said, quote, rape is just a buzzword. No. Now, as I am reg- I'm regretting everything that I said earlier in this episode. I'm so much like him. Oh, my God. Yeah, I knew you would. Oof. Okay. As you can imagine, this brought on some backlash for that type of commentary. Really? Surprising, I know. I, oh, man. Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm no, I know. It's, I know. So Quentin issued an apology and said, yes, she was raped. He was trying to play devil's advocate on Howard Stern because that's the environment that Howard creates. And he said, quote, I was ignorant and insensitive and above all incorrect. So (sighs) he acknowledged it. But I mean, as we always say, like you still said it in the first place. There's a nugget of truth there. I I was going to ask. I mean, it it is Howard Stern. I wonder what the context of that conversation was and how. Howard responded to it, but regardless, yeah, I mean, it was still said on tape. Mm -hmm. So in 2004, Kill Bill Volume 2 is released. Now, Quentin considers both Kill Bill films to be one single film, so he doesn't view them as two separate films. He's still known to drive around Malibu in the iconic pussy wagon that's shown in Kill Bill. That's what it's (laughs) called. We're going to have to bleep that for sure. Yeah. So, important to note for this film as well, there is a lot of blood. I haven't seen it, but Kate, you have. You can probably confirm this. But Quentin did this because he wanted to make sure there was some consistency with Chinese cinema. The blood effects were done in the exact same manner that Chinese cinema did, so it was actually condoms filled with fake blood that would explode. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. And 450 gallons of fake blood were used between the two films. (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah, yeah. i mean it, it, it is gratuitous but that that's also when i think of his film that's what i think of is like gratuitous totally. violence and blood and gore but it's almost yep. comical yeah like point. it's borderline cheeky and yeah. a little kitschy <laughs> the new york times said kill bill volumes one and two enhanced his reputation as someone who could break all the rules making movies that were simultaneously stylish exciting and knowingly cheesy and somehow get away with it I just thought that encompassed it so well, everything Mm -hmm. that he has going on. Because let's face it, in his films, I don't care if you've seen one or all of them, there is a lot going on, no matter (laughs) which one it is. Yeah, so true. So flash forward to 2009, Inglorious Bastards comes out. Now, 
if you know and you've ever seen this film you know anywhere in text or whatever it is not spelled correctly so it's spelled i-n-g-l-o-u-r-i-o-u-s-b-a-s-t-e-r-d-s so it's incorrect and the reason behind it like all of his titles seem to be is still a mystery he said here's the thing i'm never going to explain that you do an artistic flourish like that and to explain it, it would just take the piss out of it and invalidate the whole stroke in the first place. <laughs> I, I didn't know. Okay, so I guess I've seen five movies because I've seen this one as well. Great. Oh, the opening scene is so, so brilliant. It's so good. That's what everyone says. But also, I I assumed that it had been explained why it's spelled that way. I oh, just no. never cared enough to look it up. I can't believe he just, you know, left it as... It's up to you to decide. That's Mm -hmm. crazy. There's that 20% of him not explaining the movies. Oh my gosh. Wow. So the theories, as you can imagine, are wild around this one as well. Uh, For those of you that don't know, it's an alternate history movie. It's about World War II Nazis, alternate storylines of what may or may not have happened or could have happened in that time. Now, this film is allegedly the first of a trilogy. So this goes back to all of his films being related. On set, during the movie, as you might recall, Kate, because you've seen it, there's a scene where Diane Kruger is strangled in the movie, Mm -hmm. and this scene was heavily debated. People did not like that they showed this. Even though he has shown violence towards women before, people did not like the fact that this was shown in a film. Hmm. Despite the controversy, the movie obviously received many Oscar nominations, and Christoph Waltz won for supporting actor for his role in this film. So it did pretty well to say the least i mean i've seen it so it must have done exactly i'm shocked that you've seen it (laughs) i'm shocked that two out of the five movies you've seen are quentin tarantino movies well you might say other ones and i just had no idea that he was behind it so we'll, we'll find out so i mentioned that this is a nazi film and the upcoming movie this will be relevant to as well but the reason he does black exploitation films and nazi themed films are based on his hatred of racism and slavery. He's fascinated by pro-KKK books, describing them as pure evil. Same with Hitler's Mein Kampf. He wants to make these films about revenge, that these people that were so targeted and oppressed by these other evil people, he wants to make them get revenge in his films in this fantasy world that he creates. Where does that come from? Unclear. Like, out of left field. It's definitely true, but... Yeah, you're, you're going to show a bunch of violence towards women, but you're like, oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Right? And, I mean, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to make films about this. He's come out and is staunchly against police brutality. In fact, so much so that a few years back, police unions were boycotting his films because they said, you don't respect us. He's in a fantasy world. He doesn't understand true violence, all of these things. And he doesn't care. He's like, I believe what I believe, and we need reform in this country, and if you don't share my opinion, that's fine. I don't really care if you don't watch my films anymore. So, Hmm. he also has said on racial injustice, I feel like it's another 60s moment where the people themselves had to expose how ugly they were before things could change. I'm hopeful that that's happening right now. Wow. So, take that for what you will. This leads us to Django Unchained in 2012. So... Django was the first movie in Quentin's mind. Don't know if this is true. If you know, let us know. But 
he said about it, no one has ever addressed slavery in a film like this in this country ever in the same way. So that's how he kind of went into this <laughs> film. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> I, eh, you know, can't confirm, can't deny. So I'm in no uh, position to speak on this intelligently. In, in what way are we talking about here? Right. Unclear. Okay. So this is allegedly the second movie of the trilogy that I mentioned. So Inglorious Bastards oh. was the first, then Django was the second. The third movie in the trilogy is reported to be called Black Crow, and it'll be a spin-off of one of the storylines from Inglorious Bastards. So it would be Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and then this third movie, Black Crow, based on Inglorious Bastards. Interesting. It's interesting yeah. that he will reveal that information. He won't say why Inglorious Bastards is spelled the way it is, but he'll, <laughs> he'll tell us that it's a trilogy connected to... I had no idea that Django Unchained was connected to... Me either. To first one me there because there's such vastly different settings that you don't put two and two together anyways django is a revisionist western film about slavery in the deep south now as you might recall leo dicaprio or leonardo mm. i guess this is true name leonardo dicaprio's character is in it as a very bad guy and quentin <laughs> said he's the only character that he's written that he has genuinely hated he said, I normally like my villains no matter how bad they are. I can see their point of view. I could see his point of view, but I hated it so much. For the first time as a writer, I just f hated this guy. Wow. Yeah. He felt it was important to the film, which just shows you he was trying to make it as accurate as possible and uh, really shine light on these former issues. So I, I was going to say that that could have something to do with Leonardo DiCaprio's acting, but also I don't think it is because I think he had that character in his head prior yes. to that. It had nothing 100%. to do with Leo. Huh. 100%. Okay, so this bothered Leonardo DiCaprio so much that at one point he had to stop filming because he struggled with having to use so many racial slurs towards his friends on set, which that would I totally tough. get. Yeah. And... Samuel L. Jackson and Jamie Foxx pulled him aside and they said, quote, mother, this is just another Tuesday for us. Let's go. That's powerful. Wow. Yeah. But I get where Leonardo DiCaprio is coming from, because here he is with his friends, his colleagues, people he's known for a really long time, and he's having to use these terrible slurs. I get being uncomfortable with that. I mean, that would mess with your head, man. Yes. That's crazy. And then they're and, telling but you, it's okay. I, I, but I love their response because it's not like, it's okay, like, we're working, it's fine. It's like, no, like, we're used to it, which is so dark, but it, it's a good, like, kind of wake-up call. And it would probably help with with your acting performance because it's like, totally. this is reality. Yeah. So, on that note, I think the reason that Leo, I keep calling him Leo. Well, he's Leonardo. our buddy Leo. <laughs> he, he's just an icon, it's fine. Uh, I think the reason that Leonardo DiCaprio ended up being okay with the whole thing is because of trust. I mean, he's been friends with Quentin for 15 plus years. Samuel L. Jackson has appeared in five Quentin Tarantino films. Oh, wow. Quentin Tarantino has said about Christoph Waltz, who was in Inglourious Bastards, and Samuel L. Jackson, it's actually hard not to write for them because they sing my dialogue. They turn it into the music that it's supposed to be. So the mutual trust that they all have with one another is very real. Hmm. Now, I mentioned this because Quentin obviously has the trust, and we talked about that, but 
he uses repeat actors. That's a thing. People address that all the time. He likes to use similar characters, which when you think about it, if all the films are in the same universe, how does that work if he's using the same actors in different roles? But that's something that we can talk about at a different time, because I'm pretty sure we could have a million theories about that. And there are, as with all of his stuff. So characters are obviously very important to him. This is very evident in everything that he does. He once said, I write good characters for actors to play. I cast actors with integrity as opposed to trying to just match whoever's hot with something going on. It's like my character is more important than any given actor, if that makes sense. Nothing is more important than my characters. Nothing? Which makes sense. (laughs) Nothing. 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 Nothing ever. Uh, well, again, it kind of reminds me of, of J.D. Salinger and how he would mm-hmm. use the same characters over and over again because he was able to create those backstories and flesh out those backstories until... Yeah, like Uncle Wiggly. Un- Uncle, Wiggly Uncle Wiggly comes to mind, naturally. I don't even think that was his name, but no. we're going to go with that. No, we're going to go with that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense and you are tied to those characters and it makes it... I don't want to say easier because it's not easy, but you're creating this whole universe instead of just yeah. coming up with something new or not, not even new, but just like creating another character that's maybe not as deep or exciting. You get to flesh something out, which is even cooler. Agreed. About these characters and where he draws inspiration, he has said that what he likes to do is observe people and observe their conversations. And even if it's the littlest behavior that he sees, He'll find a way to incorporate it with characters. And even if it's like a story that someone's telling him or that he observes someone telling someone else, he uses that in his storylines and for these characters because he feels like real people are the best source of inspiration to develop characters. And he's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, Not wrong. I don't want to hear a story about some alien who's living just like a great life and all this stuff. I want to hear about real stuff and real people and what they're going through because, and you can put it in any setting, uh-huh. but it's, they're still real people. So cool. Just a little, I thought that was cool. So needless to say, Django also receives multiple Oscar nominations and one for best original screenplay. And Christoph Waltz wins yet again for supporting actor. Now, Quentin has directed eight actors in Oscar-nominated roles, so he clearly, with these characters that he creates, he's able to get the best out of his actors that he puts in these situations, which I think is very cool. In fact... Were any of them women? I don't think so. I don't think so, to be honest, because, yeah, I'm 99% sure no. I mean, I'm thinking, like, maybe Uma Thurman, but maybe not. I don't think so. Yeah. Wild. So needless to say, with all the Oscar nominations, it was incredibly well-received by critics, but there was persistent controversy over the violence that was showcased in the film, especially because racial tension is a big topic. Even in 2012, it was still really coming to light. So there was a lot of controversy, and he was getting a lot of questions about why he would show that kind of violence so realistically on screen. So he did an interview that I'm going to play you and let you watch. Oh, boy. Uh, it's going to be a little bit longer. It's going to be about a minute because I want you to fully grasp his takes on this. If that right. makes sense. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But why are you so sure that there's no link between enjoying movie violence and enjoying real violence? 
I don't, I, well, I'm going to tell you why I'm so sure. Don't, don't ask me a question like that. I'm not going to, I'm not biting. I refuse your question. Why? Because I refuse your question. I'm not your slave and you're not my master. You I'm can't just, make me dance to your tune. I, I I'm, not, I'm not a monkey. I I'm can't not, make you answer anything. I'm just, it, I'm well, asking and, you interesting and, questions. And, and I'm saying, and I'm saying I refuse. Okay, well, no, I was just asking you why. That's fine. Um, but you see, Jamie Foxx has said... We can't turn our back and say that violence in films well, then you should talk to Jamie do Fox doesn't you, have a Then you should talk to Jamie Foxx about that. And I think he's actually here, so you can. I'd, I'd love to, but I mean, I, you know, it's interesting that you have a different view, and I'm just trying to explore that. Yeah, and I don't want to. Because well, I mean, I'm here to sell my movie. This is a commercial for the movie, make no mistake. Well, you and I, yeah, yeah. This so is, you don't want to talk about anything serious? I don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. I don't want to talk about the implications of violence. I, I, I haven't wanted, I, but cause, yeah, the reason I don't want to talk about it because I've said everything I have to say about it. If anyone cares what I have to say about it, they can Google me and they can look for 20 years what I have to say about it. I haven't changed my, 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 my opinion one iota. No, but you, you, haven't, you haven't fleshed it out. That, that, I, I, it, it's not my job to flesh it out. No, it's my, it's my job to try and ask you to. And I'm all, shutting you know? your butt down. And that's, that's entirely your that's entirely This your, is a your, commercial your right. from my movie. No, I know, but it's my job to try and explore some serious themes as well, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I, I, you know. I, I, I invite you to explore some serious themes, but not things that I am already been on the record for talking but about. Viol- well, violence is so... <laughs> okay. Well, I have, I have a lot of questions. Um, first off, I was laughing because, I mean, the title of that clip says, I'm shutting your butt down. <laughs> so I was like really looking forward to that that moment. <laughs> And I'm going to start using that now. I'm shutting your butt down. Yeah, Um, probably to me, mainly. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, I'm shutting your butt down. We're going to start using that on the podcast. But, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm a bit torn right now, Justin. I'm curious to hear your thoughts because you have have clearly done more research on him and I know little to nothing. Would you say that in your research you've seen him kind of answer that question at all? No. No. Okay. And I, I watched a lot of videos, and it, as you recall, when he was being interviewed about Kill Bill, his response was the same. He went off on the reporter, the person that was interviewing him, when he was asked about violence, and I'm sure there are other clips where he has explained it. I'm sure there are. Obviously, I didn't have time. But to me, it was very interesting that the two clips that I watched, out of probably ten, about violence specifically, the reaction is so... It's so defensive. So immediately. Yes. That, that was the, the first thing. I, I was taking notes as we watched, but like s- immediately defense, like defense mode. No, mm-hmm. no explanation. And the reason why I, I ask questions first is because I, I can imagine if you are an actor or a director or something and you're, and you're doing all these like press junkets and you're getting asked the same questions over and over again, uh, right. getting frustrated at that. Now totally. I don't say I don't think that maybe that you should react that way and talk about how you're a slave and just oh I'm a monkey to whatever you tell me to do like n- that is it's just disrespectful at that point it's very troubling you know? um, so on, on I, one hand I, I was like I get being frustrated by ask like hearing the same question over and over again but also if he he really hasn't addressed this at all and. It, his immediate reaction is just to go into the defensive, like... Agreed. Something's going on here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
Yikes. So it's it made me feel weird. That's the only way yeah. I can sum it up. Because until that point, I hadn't really seen many issues. I mean, there are a few issues here and there, but they're more he said, she said. Yeah. But when I watch that and you see that response, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You know, he's so willing to speak out against police brutality and all these other serious subjects but then when it's talking about his own artistic work that's when he gets the most offensive and in a way as a creative i get that right mm-hmm. like if someone's criticizing my writing or whatever it is i'm like oh, <laughs> but they're just asking about general themes and he cannot form an answer he doesn't say anything about it well and the reporter asked a very specific question that could have been yes exactly or no. it was uh I get okay. I guess he was kind of baiting him in the way he asked it. But do you kind of like enjoy it in real life? And I guess he's not going to say yes in that interview. Like, yeah, I love seeing people get beat up and sure. bloody, but also the, to just go completely, just to go ham on them because of that question. So yes, that happened. We don't really know why this outburst of behavior is happening when he's asked about violence. But needless to say, 2015 rolls around and The Hateful Eight comes out, which is a Western spaghetti thriller. I had to look up what Western spaghetti meant because I had no idea. (laughs) Do you know what it means? Uh, When it's a Western, but it's just a bunch of pasta shooting at each other. (laughs) Right? Isn't that it? That's exactly it. It's a Western film. Apparently, at one point in history, uh, Western movies were big in, in Italy and in, by Italian people. So I wasn't so that it, far off. Okay. So you weren't. <laughs> so it's kind of a derogatory term when you look at it like that. Like, ooh, spaghetti. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Italian people. Yikes. But that's where it comes from. So this film, I had never heard of it. And I was like, why haven't I heard of this? It's considered his worst film by many critics. So Hatefully. we're just going to... S- Yes. I've heard of it. Uh, There's some famous people in that film. Oh, yeah, for sure. Samuel Jackson's in it. Um, The Usual Suspects. Okay, so same same crew. Just considered, yeah, considered one of the worst. I have nothing else to say about that. Just wanted to mention Hmm. that he did have a film that was not critically acclaimed, which is rare for him. I wonder how he dealt with that. (laughs) Me too. So, in 2018... This is when things get a little hairy. So the audio from his Stern interview about the rape resurfaces, which naturally causes a whirlwind of controversy. Famous actress Jessica Chastain said his films use violence against female characters as a plot device to make them stronger. She said, we don't need abuse in order to be powerful. How many images of women in media do we celebrate that showcase abuse? When did this become normalized entertainment? And you know what? She's not exactly wrong. She's. I might get a lot of hate for this, and I'm sorry, but I never considered that. Like, I, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of films, but I, I, I can watch. You know, I've watched like dark stuff. I watch murdery stuff, and I it never like dawned on me and like, oh, these these films are specifically violent against women but again like i haven't seen those agreed scenes so uh, i see both sides is what i'll say yes like now that i've i've read this stuff and i've taken a beat to look into it further i get where they're coming from but i also 
I've seen a lot of movies and it's never rang true for me and been an immediate thought of, oh man, the women in this film, my goodness. Because aren't, isn't there a lot of violence against the, the men in his films as well? Or is it, yes. okay. There's just violence across the board. So to me, it was never an isolated incident towards women. It was, they're just violent. Mm-hmm. That's it. So... As you may recall, this is around the time when all the allegations against our friend Harvey Weinstein come about. Now, Quentin had a long-standing relationship with Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein, in fact, said, My first company, Miramax, was the house that Quentin built, and my second company, The Weinstein Co., is the house that Quentin saved. So they had a very long-standing alliance. All of his films were produced by Miramax or The Weinstein Co. until this point. And Quentin said, one of my big secrets is Harvey really genuinely likes my movies. They just had mutual respect for each other. Now, when all of the allegations towards Weinstein came out and all of this stuff with the Me Too movement came to be, Quentin confessed he could and should have done more about Harvey's predatory behavior. Yeah. He said, I knew enough to do more than I did. And there are two instances in which he actually did do stuff, but probably not enough in his mind. So one was his ex-girlfriend confided in him about Weinstein's predatory behavior towards her in the 90s. And as soon as Quentin heard about it, he confronted Harvey and Harvey apologized. Whoa. Yep. And then Uma Thurman alleged that Weinstein assaulted her on the Kill Bill set, and Quentin Tarantino allegedly banned Harvey from contact with Uma for the rest of production on the spot, no questions asked, just banned him. I was going to ask earlier, when you mentioned that Quentin Tarantino finally released the tapes to Uma in 2018, like I was like, well, that that was after the whole thing with Harvey came out. So it was like, that was why he did it, is because it's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I got to be on the right side of history right now. For sure. And I think it is interesting to me to hear that he did do something on set. You know, she came to him with a problem and he said, let me handle this. And apparently Harvey Weinstein respected these rules and didn't try to do anything else to Uma. But Oh, okay. So respect him because he's asking, but you're not going to respect the women you abuse. That's cool. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So... Just an important note that they were at one point very close and I, all of his films. I just were. can't imagine if, if this guy assaults your girlfriend of all people, I wouldn't you like cut ties with them entirely? I mean, obviously your whole livelihood, which is the problem with almost every, this is a whole other tangent, but like every Harvey <laughs> Weinstein uh, project, I mean, you could say that for everyone. Why didn't they just cut ties with them completely? He's basically and it's running. it's more complicated than we know. I know. Yeah. But like your it girlfriend? Sucks. I don't know. That's well, I mean, To be fair, she did not come to Quentin until many years later. So it happened in the 90s, and I don't think she reported it until uh, the early 2000s. So sad. But still, yeah. there's a big gap between when... Yeah. Anyways, like you said, we could go on forever mm. about that, but... Needless to say, during this time, Rose McGowan said Quentin was always very vocal about fetishizing her feet. He told me about it loudly over and over for years in front of numerous people. And this is important because the majority of his movies contain scenes with women's feet. And when he was receiving all this other backlash, this became a topic that people were talking about as well, is his foot fetish or alleged foot fetish. I mean, 
I'm not going to kink shame anyone. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm still kind of hung up on the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, though. So I'm just going to zip. Agreed. Let you finish. Agreed. Now, as you can imagine, there are a lot of people that took Quentin's side throughout all this. And a lot of people said that this backlash would not affect him because he had never been accused of sexual harassment himself. And many actresses that had worked with him, Diane Kruger, for example, came out and said, I would like to say my work experience with Quentin was a pure joy. He treated me with utter respect and never abused his power or forced me to do anything I wasn't completely comfortable with. So he did have a lot of people that backed him despite getting shot on by (laughs) the world at this time. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So in true Quentin fashion... 2019 rolls around and he releases once upon a time in Hollywood. This is his most recent film and it is a comedy drama about Hollywood's golden age in the sixties. It also touches on the Manson family murder of Sharon Tate, who is married to ironically Roman Polanski, who we talked about a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. in this film. And the film itself is a complete mashup of real events and people with pure fiction per the usual Quentin Tarantino way. And a lot of people consider this to be Quentin's love letter to 60s L.A. If you Mm. recall, he lived there as a child, Mm -hmm. so he kind of wanted to go back to that state. Something I thought was really interesting, and you might know this, but for some of the scenes, they essentially made over and shut down six blocks of Hollywood Boulevard, which has never been done, so that they could bring it back to the 60s vibe. And they even filled the streets with vintage cars to make it look right. They redid signage. They just did a spectacular job recreating 60s Hollywood. So Hollywood. Have you seen that movie? I haven't. It's in my queue to watch, but I have not watched it yet. It's the sixth film that I've seen. And what, Kate? You've seen three. (laughs) No, these are recovered memories that are coming up. That's the thing is, I'll watch a movie and then I immediately forget that I watched it. But I, I actually really did love that. It was long. It's really long. But naturally. But you know, like I love true crime stuff, and because it had the whole Manson story. No, yep. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it because it's it's not a true story. It's uh, you know revisionist history, if you will, and it's mm-hmm. it the ending is so different from what you expect, and it's really kind of like fun and happy. So it, it's brilliant. It's it's really. I've heard really good things. Mm-hmm. I've heard really good things. I'm excited to watch it. So, as you know, Kate, Brad Pitt, and Leonardo DiCaprio, who are frequent collaborators with Quentin, appear again who? in the film. Brad Pitt. You know, have you heard of him? That guy? Yeah. Yeah. Weirdo. Now, Margot Robbie's also in the film. And when they were all at Cannes in a press conference, he was asked why he didn't give her more speaking lines and the character of Sharon Tate more speaking lines. And instead of answering the question, he said, I reject your hypothesis. <laughs> Just straight up. I reject your hypothesis. Margot, being the queen that she is, Mm -hmm. was much more gracious. And she said, oh, you know, I understand why he did this. He was trying to portray her in this way. And she explained it from an artistic standpoint. Whereas all Quentin said was, I reject your hypothesis. Okay. It's not a hypothesis. You're asking a question. It's a statement. Yeah. Fine. Now, on a related note, he was once asked, do you feel any responsibility to write roles for women outside of the typical Hollywood demographic? Which, whatever, say what you will. 
his response was, I don't have any responsibility at all. You know, Jess, I'm all about female empowerment. And maybe I'm just like woefully uneducated on this whole scenario in in film. But again, I'm like, I kind of get it. Like he's known for doing what he does. He does films that are full of violence and whatever. And that's, I can still watch them and be entertained Exactly. And I can go and watch, uh, like, Amy Poehler's films if I want to feel like it's... You know what I mean? Like, it's... People are known for different things, and that's... There's a lot of questions towards him saying, well, why don't... Why do you hate women so much? Maybe he does. Maybe he does, and I'm an idiot, but I'm not getting that vibe as much. It's more like, I'm just trying to make art, man. (laughs) Exactly. And that's the exact vibe that I get. Hmm. And with that said, there is initially a lot of controversy around recreating such a horrible event in Sharon Tate's murder, especially from her sister. But once he actually sent Sharon Tate's sister the script and was like, I want you to feel comfortable with this. And once she read it, people eased up and she said, oh, I totally understand it now Mm -hmm. to the point that she gave some jewelry of Sharon's to the set and to the movie so that it would appear more authentic in the film. That's telling. That's very telling. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I mean, uh, uh, Sharon Tate was a famous actress who was murdered by Charlie Manson's family, a a group of people. And again, like, I don't want to give away a spoiler. If you haven't seen this movie and you don't want to know, uh, skip ahead but I almost see this as like his almost weird apology about the violence towards women mm-hmm. because he does kind of like subvert your expectations here and that story is very what happened is very violent in real life but he turns it on his head so it's not and it's like what could have happened he could have shown the murders and shown you know what happened to Sharon Tate but instead he doesn't so right Interesting. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So, unsurprisingly, just based on the controversy ahead of the film, because what's a Quentin movie without controversy? Sure. It did receive mixed reviews, and one person called it his wistful midlife crisis movie. <laughs> That's mean. Despite that, right? Despite that, it received 10 Oscar nominations, and Brad Pitt actually won the Oscar for Supporting Actor, which was really nice to see. It's worked a long time in the business. <laughs> Just Wait. as an aside. Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio? Brad Pitt. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so we get to today, and Quentin has said publicly that he wants to retire from filmmaking at the age of 60 to focus on novel writing. He also has said, if it actually gets to the place where you can't show 35 millimeter film in theaters anymore and everything is a digital projection, I won't even make it to 60. So he's very anti everything going digital. He only wants to use 35 millimeter film. He's also said about himself that he's mellowing out and that he acknowledges that he was kind of out there when he was younger, but he actually feels like his success has made him mellow a little bit and he can't get mad at anything anymore because he's so successful. And life is too short to get mad at the small things. So he acknowledges this. I would acknowledge it, too, if I was a bajillionaire. Right? (laughs) Living in the Hollywood Hills. Like, yeah, Yeah. life's too short. So it's no secret to say, I think we can surmise from all this information, that his legacy and his influence is tremendous. He really is one of the most celebrated filmmakers of our generation. Business Insider said... 
Each of his works has made a profound impact on the history of cinema and inspiring generations of filmmakers with vastly new style and approach to filmmaking that can only be described as Tarantino-esque, which, by the way, is now an official entry in Oxford English Dictionary. Whoa! That's the biggest accomplishment. Yeah, you're in the dictionary now with your last name. So So is Bootylicious, though, so... Yeah, really, who's to say? As we've touched on, the main prongs of his films are razor-sharp dialogue, graphic yet stylized violence, non-linear narrative structure, things like that that he's become so famous for, and that other people try to copy now. An Esquire article said every single one of his films have existed as a synthesis of pop culture for the last century. His films explore our relationship to movies and television, how they influence our perception of the real world. He's also long used these same films as a way to create his own revisionist history, crafting his own cinematic version of world events. Well, wow. That's it. That's the tweet. (laughs) That's the tweet. There it is. So you called that. I think something that we've touched on a lot, but we haven't really uh, addressed in further detail is this idea of revisionist history that he seems to do over and over and over again. And I really do think that comes from a good place, as weird as that is to say. Mm -hmm. I think that he does it because he wants to see a new version that's not as terrible as the old version. So take that however you want. I want to go watch some movies now. Reels. Oh, it's like uh, we joke about how I haven't seen that many movies, but just when you're like shouting things or talking about different movies that he's made, I'm like, oh, wait, I've seen that one. I've seen that one. Yeah, you've seen three of them. That's more than I have. So just, I mean, he really has kind of transcended in a way. I mean, he's in the dictionary, so. Yeah, so it's fine. It's fine. So it's no secret that his films and he as a person have a cult-like following. There's even a Quentin Tarantino-themed bar in Brooklyn that shows his movies on repeat. (laughs) It's fun. I think it's also important to note that he's always been ahead of his time. His stuff was probably 20 years, especially Pulp Fiction is probably the best example of that, but people had never seen a movie like that before. Hmm. And then everyone tried to copy it. So he was about 20 years ahead of the curve with everything that he was including, all the different styles and elements and timelines and all that stuff. Wow. Which is pretty cool. Definitely a visionary. Yes. Last but not least, he always gets questions about his number of films. So he's only created nine and he's often said that he'll be done at film number 10. Now, if you think about his film career, he's been active for a very long time now, over 30 years. And people ask him other filmmakers and everyone, they're putting out triple what you put out. And he always resorts back to the integrity of the film. He always says, I want to make sure it's perfect. I want to make sure that it actually makes sense. You can do all these other films, but at some point they're going to become bad. And I never want that to happen. I always want them to be high quality. Wow. Which is a theme that we see with many of the creatives that we cover. So, Kate, I leave you with this question. Oh, boy. Is our dear friend Quentin Tarantino the worst? Uh, no. I'm going to go with no. He sounds like, especially in that last bit, he sounds just like a true diehard creative. And clearly there's a lot of problematic stuff going on here i think he also was working with a lot of terrible awful people who are the worst yes but yeah i don't know i i might need to just learn more but i i don't think that he hates women i don't either 
I, I, when I was watching that clip, I mean, it felt like he genuinely seemed annoyed about being asked that so many times. Agreed. Uh, and also just, I mean, what did he say? Shut down your butt? <laughs> shut your butt down. Shut your butt down. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to sh- shut your butt down. I'm going to shut your butt down and say no. What do you think? I agree with you. I think, yes, he's complicated, like any of the creatives that we discuss on the show are, but I think he really is a visionary. And I think if you've seen any of his films, it's instantly recognizable that he's just so far above and beyond Mm -hmm. what other people do in that industry. And everything, the part that I couldn't get past is the whole idea that all the films are tied together. The amount of thought that goes into that and the details and the little intricacies that he's thinking about that no one else probably even realizes. I think that makes him not the worst. It's brilliant. Maybe he's done some bad things here and there, but I don't think he's the worst of all time. I feel like any means. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole and try to figure out how everything's connected now. Oh, there are plenty of articles. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'll keep you busy this weekend. Well, <laughs> sending you some. That's amazing. Well done. That was that was awesome. And I I feel so much cooler now that I know about him. You know, you can just whip out these facts. Yeah, whip out these facts out anytime. Right. If you feel like we forgot any facts, or if you want to share your favorite theory about your favorite Quentin Tarantino yeah, film, please let us know. I would love to hear that. Podcast at designpickle.com. Also, if you like what you're hearing, just give us a little subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. That would and, be nice. Uh, we'll be back next week on Monday with someone else. We'll try to figure out. I don't out know who. If they're the worst. I don't know. We'll see. Until then. Maybe. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>